we are all making meaning out of facts? And is there another way to look at the situation? This is how you overcome the obstacles. Is there another way to look at the situation that makes you more powerful? Hello and welcome to episode two of the first season of Changing You. Our season is all about how do you overcome challenges or obstacles to making change. And this conversation that I had with Dr. Constant Scharf is absolutely perfect. She is a, a doctor, an author, a researcher, and her work really started in exploring addiction and trauma. And today she does a lot of work looking at the relationship between climate change and trauma, which I think is so interesting. And something, a common thread that has run through all of her work is story. The stories we tell ourselves, the roles that stories play in shaping our reality, and how you can change your story to make a change in your life and in your community. I could have spoken to her all day long, um, and I just had so many more questions, but she shares some really, really fantastic examples of how stories shape our world. And I'm so, so, so excited to share it with you. So without any further ado, my wonderful, wonderful conversation with Dr. Constance Schaff. Dr. Constance Schaff, welcome so much to the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So jumping straight in, do you mind sharing with me and with us a little bit about your work? So I am am a mental health researcher. I specialize at the intersection of addiction and trauma. I think that those are two issues. They're separate issues, but very much related. Um, I also, over the years, have focused on complementary therapies. So things that we can do in addition to talk therapies and, and, and psycho different forms of psychotherapy to improve treatment outcomes. And in the last couple of years, about the last two years, I've really become interested in the relationship between climate change and trauma and climate change and mental health issues and the, uh, complementary therapies and indigenous ways of addressing mental health issues that can be used because climate change is, as we've seen this summer is obviously happening. Right. Yeah. I'm so excited to ask you more about that, but before I do tell me a little bit about how you got to the work, your journey to the work that you do. Sure. So there's uh, a joke in, uh, a lot of doctoral programs, I have a PhD in in transformative studies, which is the study of change. Um, How does change occur? And I look at addiction because um, I think it's one uh, to go from addict to sober is one of the greatest, most profound changes that a person can go through. Um, But there's a joke and it says that most research is me search. So I uh, was sober uh, when I was in graduate school and um, a lot of veterans were coming back from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they, uh, I would see them at uh, different, you know, uh, mutual aid meetings and uh, they weren't getting sober. And they had the same kind of trauma I have also in addition to uh, addiction. I had early childhood, very uh, difficult trauma. And so I related 
to these individuals and they weren't getting better. I was, I don't know, nine years sober. I'm 25 years, over 25 years sober at this point, but I was like, I don't know, eight, nine years sober. They're coming back from the war. They're not getting sober. I was mildly suicidal all the time, very depressed. Um, And one of the veterans killed himself. And I was really, and he, he uh, had a, a wife and an infant child, very young. I think he was 23, 24 when he died. And I thought, you know, there has to be something better. There has to be better treatment for us because I'm sober but miserable and these guys are dying. And so I changed everything that I was doing in graduate school. I was actually looking at international development and climate change and things like that. I switched all that up and and went fully into mental health. Um, and since then, I've really been looking at how do we get better outcomes. And um, I also am a writer. I if I didn't have to have a day job, I would just write. Um, and so, although I love my day job, but um, you know. I started looking at how stories affect us. And so in terms of complementary therapies, my specialty is stories and storytelling. That's so interesting. And what we're mostly going to be talking about today is stories and the role that stories play in our worldview. And if you want to change your worldview or you want to change your experience, how can you change the story that you're telling yourself? So to start off with, how, how do you define story? So it's interesting, you know, before this interview, I pulled up the Oxford uh, definition of story, and it says this. It says, a story is an account of imaginary or real people and events told for entertainment, which I'm like, hmm. So we put imaginary people for entertainment is really the focus of the first definition. And the second definition is an account of past events in someone's life. So history or her story, right? Um, His story or her story, um, or in the evolution of something. So uh, the story of modern science or the story of modern farming. So those are, you know, two definitions of stories. I think story, I'm fascinated that Oxford chose uh, uh, this, that it has to be for entertainment as the first definition, because that's not how our brains work. Our brains are designed to take different facts, different observations that we have, and to put them together in a story, in a tale, in the evolution, to create meaning, a story is an amalgamation of information to create meaning, whether that's real fiction or nonfiction, right? Real or unreal. Um, you know, and we can make the argument that some fiction is perhaps more real than some history. Um, you know, Harry Potter would be an example, but um, because it has more impact on us, right? But we take this information and we create meaning out of it. And that is the story, So there are facts, rain falls from the sky, right? But what meaning does that have? Well, it has meaning if you're a farmer in one way. It has very different meaning if you're waiting at a bus stop and there's no shelter. It has a very different meaning if you are 
walking somewhere where your car's broken down and you have no cell phone service, right? And you don't have a coat with you. Um, it has very different meaning if you are uh, in the middle of a monsoon and the rain's coming down so hard that everything is flooding, right? The rain is still the rain, but the meaning we assign to it is based on the story that we tell ourselves the rain is good it's watering the crops the rain is bad it's washing away the town the rain is bad because i'm cold and i'm standing at the bus stop and the bus is late right so we tell ourselves stories to give meaning to what's around us otherwise it's just rain right and where do those stories come from They come from a couple of places. Some of it is our internal experience. So I was sexually assaulted as a child. That's just a piece of information. I was sexually assaulted as a child, but I overheard the person who assaulted me say, I don't want to have sex with fat women. So my internal experience was, hmm, maybe I can protect myself if I gain some weight, right? So that came from, from two sources. Number one is my experience of not wanting to be sexually assaulted and from an external source of, you know, this person saying, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sexually assault a fat person. I wouldn't sexually assault someone who was in a larger body. And for years, I believed that. And then I was like, then at another point, I was like, someone said to me, that's not true. And for whatever reason, on because I'd heard that a thousand times, but for whatever reason on that day, it landed because I had a different internal experience at that point. I'd had some different complementary um, therapies that had really helped me. And I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Statistically, heavyset women and men, you know, heavyset people get, you know, sexually assaulted the same as, as anyone in any other size body. It doesn't matter if you're tall or thin or skinny. It isn't, mm. it, it's all irrelevant. Yeah. But you it know? was a story that you had. If you watch, uh, you know, my 600 pound life, mm-hmm. a lot of those people, almost all of them are married. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was like, oh, so we make things up to make situations make sense got it and presumably a lot of a lot if not all of that is happening on a subconscious level I would say almost all of it it really takes a lot of therapy to be aware of how we get in our own way I mean I think the biggest problem for anybody is that we're just not aware of what we do to ourselves and how we get in our own way and and so on and so forth. So um, I would say it's almost all subconscious. I mean, not always, you know, when I was drinking, I knew that I was drinking not to feel my feelings. I knew I was dying, but it didn't seem real. Right. Didn't seem real because again, I tell myself, well, it's not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like the, it's like people who, you know, shoot heroin. There's so much fentanyl now mixed in. The odds of you dying are very high, mm. but they're not going to die this time. Right. 
you right. know, and or, it's not going to happen this time. And listen, sometimes I don't want to feel my feelings and I eat ice cream. Mm-hmm. And I do that because I know that the consequences, they're there, but they won't be immediate. Right. I'm not going to overdose and die and go from having, you know, two servings of ice cream. Right. But right. if I have two servings of ice cream today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, 10 years from now, the doctor might say to me, oh, honey, you've done too much damage. We can't fix it anymore. Right. So when you're serving yourself the ice cream, the story isn't I'm hurting my health. The story is I'm making myself feel better or I deserve the ice cream or I want the ice cream. And there won't be any consequences now. So it's right. okay. <laughs> Right. You know, and listen, sometimes that's true. Yeah. In the sense of uh there's a little I live uh in a in a resort community. A lot of a lot of people come up here for the summer because it's one place in, in Washington state in the summer it's not raining. So and it's right <laughs> on the coast. So there's a little shop that sells candy, ice cream, cookies, popcorn, and snow cones. So once a year, I go to the store and I get a snow cone. Is eating a snow cone once a year going to hurt me? No, it is not. Right. If that was the only treat I was getting, right? But I had a snow cone last week and then, you know, yesterday I had ice cream and tomorrow I might have a piece of cake and then, well, it's cumulative, but that's not the story I tell myself. The story I tell myself is it's perfectly acceptable and it is. In truth, yeah. it's perfectly acceptable to have a snow cone once a year as a treat. Well, I think the point that you're making is that the stories we tell ourselves contribute fundamentally to the life that we live because we have stories about everything we do and everything we interact with. They are the basis of the life that we live. Like I mm-hmm. said, our brains create meaning. So, you know, it's important that that our brains do this, right? This is not a mistake of evolution. If I look on the ground and I see bear scat and I look on the tree and I see bear claw marks and I look down the trail and I see that there is a, um, a hole in the ground with some claw marks going into it that might be bear prints, I probably should not proceed down the trail in the direction of the bear den. Right. Right? Especially if it's, you know, sort of beginning of spring when the bear is coming (laughs) out very hungry. This is an important, this is an important tool. Right. So we actually live the realities that we tell ourselves. So I'll give a controversial example. So, uh, Former President uh, Trump was indicted recently about the uh, January 6th. There are some people who take the facts, right? Let's just take the facts of that are given in uh, the indictment and let's just, for the sake of argument, say they're all true. He was at this place at this time. These are the things that were said. These are the things that he did. Let's just assume that's, that's true. These are the facts that were given. There are some people who look at those facts and tell themselves the story 
They make meaning out of those facts and they tell themselves a story and they say, this is a politically motivated, his words, witch hunt Mm -hmm. to get him ineligible in some way to not become president again. There are other people who take exactly the same information and say, I think dude broke the law and should be prosecuted for trying to, quote unquote, overthrow the government. That's what's alleged. These are two very different stories from the same information. Yeah. And the people who believe the different stories behave in different ways. So creating stories is the foundation of our lives. So I work with addiction and trauma. Let's talk about addiction for a second. If you tell yourself, and I hear this from addicts all the time, people who suffer from addiction, I can't do it. I can't get sober. I can't. It's too hard. It's too scary. It's too hard. I can't do it. Then that's true. If you believe that there, you are a hopeless case and there is nothing that can be done for you, then my job is to help you change that story, mm. right? So that you believe, because if, if you believe it's true, it's true. Now, there are some facts that I can't change. So for example, if I said, oh, the story I'm going to tell myself is I'm going to be a gold medal Olympic gymnast for the U.S. Olympic team. I'm 50 years old. I'm overweight. and I'm not in the best of health, right? <laughs> Am I going to do that? No, I'm not. That's, that's, that's just, a, that's a falsehood. But if I wanted to be a gymnast, practice some gymnastics, right? I bet I could do a forward roll today. And I bet if I did some practicing, I could do a cartwheel. Mm -hmm. And I'm certain if you asked me to do a pull up today, a chin up, no, zero chance. I do not have the, the musculature. Is there any physical reason why I could not train to do that and do that at some point in the probably near future? No, there's not. Mm. Right. So we so so I don't want to, you know, give this idea that we can just poof, you know, make anything happen. But we can make a lot more happen than we think we can. And it really is based on what we believe because we delude ourselves. I said to someone who was having a very hard time writing a resume recently, I said, think about this. People won't love to hear this, but I said, think about writing your resume from the perspective of your, um, a white man who's not quite qualified for the job. Go in with that gusto, <laughs> right? Just believe in yourself. <laughs> Right, because imposter syndrome actually doesn't exist for people who are real imposters. Right. <laughs> the people right. who are actually imposters or con men or whatever are like, yeah, I got this, baby. Whereas the people who really have the skills are like, do I really have the skills, you know, to do that? It does, you know, so these are, sto- these are stories. And, and this is how we can get rid of self-delusion, you know, so that we can accomplish more in our lives. And so that's really, you know, where, where I come in, um, is to try to help us to change, 
to change our stories. Well, and I, and everything you're sharing is landing with me. So on such a personal level, it makes perfect sense to me, a personal kind of example from recently. So I am recently recovering from foot surgery and, um, I'm a runner and, uh, movement and exercise are an important part of my life. And so I'm just a few weeks out from surgery, but I'm walking now and I'm starting to do, um, to do things. And then prior to surgery, I was injured for 12 months. So I'm actually coming off of like a year and a half of not really being able to do my full stuff. So I'm starting, you know, I'm doing things for the first time. Like this morning I did lunges for the first time in a long time. And I went to yoga yesterday for the first time in a long time. And it's hard. It's hard. Things that used to be very easy are very difficult. And there's two stories I can tell myself about this. The one story I can tell myself is that I've lost so much strength and ability and that I'm starting from scratch and I'm, I'm behind the, and sometimes I tell myself that story and it sucks and it doesn't make me feel good. Behind the, what? Like what, where are you? Behind where be? I was behind okay, where I was. It. Okay. And then the other story I can tell myself is that I'm getting stronger with each workout session, with each thing, I'm improving and getting stronger. And when I tell myself the first story, I feel pretty bad. And when I tell myself the second story, I feel really pretty good. And that's not to suggest that it is as easy as just changing sure. it. But and sometimes it's easier than others. But at least you know what I'm I'm experimenting with this on a day-to-day basis. But inviting myself to consider the other story is where I'm at. 100%. 100%. So I was, uh, several years ago, I was very sick and, um, I ride horses and mm. I had wanted to ride my horse and I went to the barn and I pulled my horse out and I was, and tied her up. I was so weak mm. I had to ask someone else. I was sitting in a chair after I tied her up. I actually had to ask someone else to put her away. I was not going to ride her. I was not going to brush her. I did give her the treats that were in my pocket, right? <laughs> I had some carrots and some and some uh, tr- other treats, and you know we had a little lovey lovey. And then she went she went back. And a lot of the time, I had your first story. Like, yeah, I was a pretty decent writer. Yeah. You know, like I, you know, I mean, never professionally or anything like that, but I recreationally, I'm not bad, you know, I'm certainly competent, but more important, I love it. Like mm. you're describing like you, it's important to you to write. It's important to me to, to, uh, to, excuse me, you're talking about important for you to run. It's important for mm. me to ride. Yeah. And, and it gives me something to be there with the horse. And so I could denigrate myself. But what I learned to do, especially with a health issue, it was helpful in me learning this, is it's better than the alternative because the alternative really is dead. When people are like, you know, like I'm like loud and proud. I'm like, I turned 50 last year. I'm going to be 51 next month. Right. And people are like, it's a little old, sweetheart. You know, you're getting a little long, like a little long in the tooth. You're getting a little up there. And I'm like, yeah, but the alternative is dead. Uh-huh. And being an addict, right? Being an alcoholic, I understand 
because I got this close to dying a couple of times. Mm. I understand that this, all of my recovery, this last 25 years is gravy. And instead of focusing on and and get, I get it. I do the, I tell myself the first story a lot. I'm a human being just like you. I'm like, oh my God, why'd you do that? You did a terrible blah, blah, blah. You didn't handle that situation the way you should. You know, I can do all of, I do all of that like everyone else. But what I've been training myself to do so that I have a better outlook. And I grew up, I was the, like the goth kid, like the emo, like very, you know, all white. I Mm -hmm. I actually, at my eighth grade graduation, I looked like the bride of Frankenstein. I really did. (laughs) I had an updo and a white streak, like everything but the white streak. And I had white pancake, make like the whole thing. Right. So I love to go down and be sad. And I I get that place, you know, and I kind of revel in that place. But I'm like, oh, wait a minute. In the last 25 years that I, you know, should have been dead from addiction, I have traveled all over the world. I've lived amazing places. I lived in India. I lived in Kenya. I've lived in the UK. I have been everywhere I want to go. I wanted to see this. I wanted to see the Sphinx. And I was so sick when I was in Egypt from this, this, you know, uh, disorder that I, that I'd had that kept me from riding my horse. And, you know, my guide, like basically like put me in front of the Sphinx. I'm smiling from ear to ear. He thought I was actually going to die because I was like bright red sweating. He's like, here's water. Let's take the picture. Let's go. You know, like, you know, I've gotten to do this. I've written books. I've won awards. My books, I had a best-selling book. Like, like I have an, I, I always wanted to be a novelist. I have a novel coming out. I want to be a PhD. I did that. Like I have had the opportunity to do so many things. Mm. And so that's when I'm, you know, not feeling so well. Yeah. Right. In here telling Mm -hmm. ridiculous stories. I'm Mm. not worth it. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve whatever. Then I remember that. And I also tell myself the story that I have a responsibility and an opportunity to help other people who do not get to share their stories. You know, one of the beautiful things I've had an opportunity to do is live with indigenous and and tribal peoples um, all over the world. They've let me live with them and I get to hear their stories and I'm like, well, that's not what I learned. And thank you for sharing some, you know, information. And I get to have the opportunity that any table I sit at, they get to sit at too, because I'm going to open that door. But if I'm, you know, a POS and, and not worth it, then not only do I sink, they don't get the door opened. And I only get to sit here because somebody else told themselves a story that I deserve to sit at the table, that a woman and a Jew and a da-da-da-da-da gets to sit at the table too. And so I think that that, you know, link in the chain, that's part of my responsibility. Well, and you hit on something really important there about the stories that other people tell themselves and how that impacts our communities. But before we get there, I because there's, a I think, a million-dollar question in the conversation that we're having is if the story, uh, you said we live the realities we tell ourselves, it really struck me. So if you want to make change in your own life, how do you change your story that you're telling yourself? So I 
don't know what capital T truth is. Like, what's the nature of the universe? Does God exist? And what does that look like? You know, if there is some sort of what, like, I don't know. Like there, I, I think probably Big Bang, like that sounds good to me, but do I know? I have no right. idea. Yeah. I look at what I call little T truths because there are some things that are just straight up fictions, mm-hmm. right? People who say are Holocaust deniers, the Holocaust that, you know, didn't happen. Well, no, it did. Like that's, there, so there are, again, facts, mm-hmm. right? And so I want to, I, I want to work within facts, you know, um, but then there's what I call little T truths. Is it true enough to recast the information? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So truth and reconciliation, right, which comes out of the African continent, really, um, used in Rwanda, used in South Africa, used after horrible, horrible situations. Does sharing my experience of a a situation to a person who has harmed me, Hmm. how does that shift my experience in my emotional state and my story. So, you know, there are people who have had a loved one murdered and they'll, and they'll say to, especially, it really gets me when it's a parent, but they'll say to the, the person who's, it's maybe the person admits it, right? Let's, let's take all the ickiness of, of court system out of it. You admitted that you murdered my child. There are some people who are, who genuinely are like, I forgive you mm-hmm. because it changes, doesn't make any difference for them. They're going to get whatever is happening with courts and all of that. It changes my experience. So with addiction, this is really important, not so much for, well, also for the, for the addict themselves, but really for the family. So one of the ways that we have familial breakdown, family breakdown in with addiction is that people who suffer from addiction hurt other people. They don't necessarily mean to. Most of the time they don't mean to, but you get in the way of our drinking, which I have to do when I'm drinking I have to drink biologically, psychologically, spiritually. I need a drink. And if you get in the way of that, you're probably going to get hurt. Example, you invite me to your wedding knowing that I am an alcoholic, active alcoholic. But you say to me, well, but don't drink at my wedding because I don't want you to act a fool. Well, that's like saying to someone, don't have diabetes at my wedding. Right? Yeah. You know, now you might say to someone who has diabetes, don't eat the cake because I don't want you to, you know, have your blood sugar rise so much that you have to be rushed to the hospital. But if they did eat the cake and did have to be rushed to the hospital, people say, ah, and you'd write it off. Right. The bride Mm -hmm. might be mad because all the attention's now, you know, on someone else and not her. But, you know. But it's the same thing. 
if I'm going to go to your wedding and you know that I'm drinking, I'm going to either try not to drink, in which case I'm going to be sick at your wedding, or I'm going to try to drink just a little, in which case I'm not going to enjoy your wedding. I may or may not show up. I may or may not show up on time. And if I can't control my drinking, well, then something I might just pa- I might just pass out in the corner or I might pee in the middle of the dance floor. I don't know. Something's going to happen. And you're going to be mad. Mm. But you're mad because you're telling yourself an untrue story. You're telling yourself a story. You know, that's like asking, you know, someone who, who's had their leg amputated to regrow their leg. You can only come to my wedding if you regrow your leg. Well, that's not going to happen. So, so it's not like cancer where the behaviors of the person with cancer, right. Going to the hospital and, and having chemo or radiation or whatever doesn't overtly hurt other people. Unfortunately, with mental health problems, with addiction, with trauma, other people get hurt. Yeah. You know, I had a, I had a, a colleague, you know, the other day who relapsed and overdosed and died, leaving four small children. I don't think the oldest is at maybe eight, maybe the youngest are about three, the twin. And so the, the three youngest probably will have no memories of this man. And I could just, when I heard that he died, the first thing that I felt is I imagined him saying, I'm so sorry, Mm. because I guarantee you, that when he used drugs that last time and, and OD'd, his intention was not to abandon his children and his wife. Because I know how much he loved them. Yeah. That's just the consequence of what happens. Yeah. I think you're getting into a really important point. And this is something that comes up for me in conversation with friends a lot when we're talking about dealing with different difficult relationships, or usually it's the behavior of another person that we are finding difficult, whether it's an ongoing behavior um, as related to something like addiction, or if it's a, it's a personality trait, or if it's a one-off thing, like some person X did something to upset person Y. And I very much believe in this idea that your story shape your reality. And that if you can change your story, oftentimes you can change your reality. I have experienced that a couple of times in my life where I've had a difficult relationship with somebody that means a lot to me. I have shifted my story and it has transformed the relationship mm-hmm. and they are, they haven't changed at all. What has shifted exactly is, the is same. my yeah. story. And when I'm explaining this to some, to people, a, a response I get is, but they, but they were doing something wrong. And I think the thing that they struggle with is that, that when you, when you, when you take it unto yourself to change your story and you're not asking the other person to change their behavior, that you're kind of letting them off the hook. And my response has been exactly what you've said is, but I was the one suffering. They were fine. They were, they were fine. They were quite happy with their behavior because they wouldn't have done it if they didn't believe that it wasn't justified or it wasn't natural for them. And so by changing my story. if it was a story, one-off, they made a mistake, right? They made like, a mistake. I tried right. that and that didn't feel good for anybody is also right. y- yes and, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, right, exactly. And so um, I, th- so I, my question is, where's the 
where's the balance between, you know, you change your own story and you alleviate your own suffering and you hold somebody accountable for an action that maybe was not great, whether it was a pattern of behavior or a one-off. So I think the hook here Mm -hmm. is this other person that you're talking to is their story because the idea is there's a judgment. They were wrong. Right. So now you've got a third party in this situation or even yourself, they were wrong, right? But it's usually a third party who's making a judgment based on their own perspectives and stories. So I think the question is, what is best for us in terms of of the story? So uh, I have a cousin who had a daughter who was a heroin addict. And mom wanted daughter to come to her wedding. She was getting married. And uh, daughter was actively using. And mom said to herself and to her partner, she said, okay, my daughter's actively using. I know what that's going to look like. She's going to try But it's more important to me to have her at the wedding than it is to say, you know what, I don't like that you're using, because obviously she didn't like that she was using, and keep her away. At the wedding, the woman's trying, right? She shows up, she's trying, but she did have to take some heroin before uh, before, before the wedding. She goes on the nod, right? So she starts to fall asleep. And she starts to lean forward in her chair, which happens when we fall asleep, right? She starts to lean forward in her chair and her breast, one of her breasts pops out of her dress. Oh, no. Right in front of grandma and the whole, you know, thing. (laughs) Yeah, I can just imagine it. (laughs) Well, she was sitting next to the bride's uncle, right? Her great uncle. She's sitting next to the bride's uncle. And he looks over at her. And he pushes her back gently, but pushes her back in her chair and pops her boob back in her, in her dress. And everybody went on because she's doing the best she can in the same way that, you know, if grandpa Joe fell asleep, you know, or, or grandma who has Alzheimer's and doesn't remember who the heck is getting married. Right. But we still bring them anyway. She died shortly after that. Mom is very grateful that she had her at the wedding, that she has that memory, that she, that her memory is not, you know, horrifying that, you know, not only did I lose my daughter, but she didn't even get to be at, you know, a very important day in my life. So is the person harming you in this case, daughter's doing the best she can and isn't harming mom. Mom says, this is, it's more important that we have this memory, right? So is the person harming you? And does it seem to be a pattern, right? Because, you know, I've certainly done things in my life where I'm like, ooh, I wouldn't do it that way again, right? And it's harmed someone else. And then we've had the conversation of, you know what? I made a mistake. Like I shouldn't have done it that way. And boy, I won't do it again. And, you know, and then you get to say, how important is this relationship to me? Mm. I heard someone, some, some, I want to say big time rapper. I don't remember who to give the appropriate credit, but it wasn't me. 
and he said, if you harm me, I'll probably forgive you, but it doesn't mean that you eat at my table again. Mm. So how important is this relationship to you, right? And, you know, if a person is continually, say a person, uh, you're in a domestic violence situation, and your partner hits you and hits you. No, no, no. We don't tell ourselves stories about that. That's no, there's some deal. There are some deal breakers, Mm -hmm. you know, but most of life is not deal breakers. Most of life is gray, you know? So if I know you're active in addiction, you don't stay the night at my house. Right. But if you do and you steal my jewelry and pawn it, that's kind of on me. Yeah. So we have to figure out what hurts us mm-hmm. enough that the relationship doesn't have enough value to overcome it. Right. You know, and, and you're right in the sense of people do things cause it works for them. Yeah. So loud mouth, you know, uncle Joe who at Thanksgiving dinner always talks about politics, knowing that he's the lone conservative in the room and wants to stir up trouble. At what point do you just stop inviting him? Mm-hmm. Right. Because you yeah, can all tolerate it to a certain extent, but at a certain point it's like, eh. Right. And that, I can't tell you what that balance is. Right. Well, and there's definitely an intersection between story and boundaries and the choices that we make and absolutely for sure. And so what we're focusing on in this season of changing you is how do you overcome obstacles to change? So if if there is a story that somebody who's listening has and it is an obstacle for them, whether it's change in their own life, in their family or in their community, and they know that they might suspect that the story is getting in the way and they're not quite sure what to do about it. How would you advise them? So I think the first thing that we have to do is identify what the stories are, because most of us are blind to to our stories, right? You know, uh, if I tell myself, you know, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I might not acknowledge to myself that I'm eat overeating at dinner because I'm upset, not because I'm actually hungry, mm-hmm. you know, like, is it reasonable to have one sandwich for lunch? Yeah. Most people would say, Sure. Is it reasonable to have two sandwiches for lunch? Yeah, uh, depending on the circumstances, sure. You know, but I'm the only one who can discern whether I'm hungry or whether I'm eating my feelings, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, but I think that the thing to acknowledge is that we are all making meaning out of facts. Mm-hmm. And is there another way? to look at the situation, you overcome the obstacles, is there another way to look at the situation that makes you more powerful? And part of that comes in connection. Because, so we're learning in addiction treatment that, that the 
solution for addiction isn't actually the opposite of addiction isn't actually sobriety. It's connection, right? Mm. That, that there were these rat studies and, and the initial rat study was, um, if you put a rat in a cage and you gave them cocaine water, heroin water, whatever, they would drink that until they died. Then, and so people were like, wow, this is really addictive. Uh, then another guy came along and he said, well, if you were in prison and miserable and in isolation, uh, why wouldn't you drink the cocaine water, right? So he said, what if we made a rat paradise? So there's lots of rats live in community, by the way. So there's lots of rats and they're, they have rat wheels and plenty of food and recreation and all the things and rat friends. And they have drug water, heroin, cocaine, whatever. They'll very often taste it, see what it is, right? But they don't, they don't drink themselves to death. They don't use until they die. Why? Because they're in communities. And when you go to and you talk with people from, you know, indigenous communities around the world, everything for health and healing is based on connection. So there's a group in Northern Kenya, Northern Kenya called the Samburu. And there was a disease, they're herders, cattle, love their cows. There's a disease called rinderpest, which came through and wiped out everything. Wiped, I mean, everything. So what do you do when the only way you know how to feed yourself is gone? Right. And if you're a herder, you can't just plant some crops like A, where are you going to get right. the seeds? B, where are you going to get the water? Then they have to grow. But, but y'all dead. So the, their way of being in the world is gone. Yeah. And there's a story of how because they did survive. There's a story of how they survived. And there was one cap full of milk. So most herders don't eat a lot of meat. They mostly mm. drink milk. Right. So there's a cap full of milk. And everybody gets the littlest sip from the capful and they're going to live or die together. Well, one guy freaks out and he's like, there's only one cap full of milk. And he grabs the milk and he swigs it down. And the story is the tribe survived and he died. Mm. Why? Well, you could, you go, I mean, is that how it happened? Yeah, I don't think so. But, you know. But that's the story. The story is we survive together. The story is we make sacrifices for each other. I remember in the Ethiopian famine, the elders of the community walked around and they put cr uh, crosses made of ash on people's heads and they put them all on themselves. They're mm -hmm. like, we're old. We've had a life. We're the least likely to survive this. But they so there's that community, you know, understanding there's self-sacrifice, you know, and there's connection. I was with the San, the, the Bushman of the Kalahari um, in, in Namibia. And, uh, you know, they get together when someone's not feeling well and they sing and they dance and they clap and they tell the person how much value they have. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's this connection yeah. That happens, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to an isolation, right? And why did the guy who drank the milk die? Because he expected to. He right. expected to die. That was his narrative. His story you was know? that and he was so, going to You know, mm -hmm. again, can you, can you, you know, positive think your way out of cancer? Uh, unlikely. But mm -hmm. if you don't have a good attitude, your outcomes are going to be much poorer. Yeah. 
Right. Right. So that's, you know, really what we have to play with is, is what is the truth and how much, you know, the lottery, right. Recently has been around a billion dollars. I don't generally play the lottery. And I think your chances are like one in 330 million or so. So what, so if every person in the United States, right. One person in the whole U S population is going to win the lottery. But I'm like, when it gets to a billion, is it worth the two dollars and the yeah, hope? Maybe you're not going to win if you don't buy a ticket. You don't win if you don't play. So that's the but that idea of you don't win if you don't play. That's this idea, right? Of of how do we change our story? Is I've got to be in it to win it. I've got to have the most positive outlook I can. It, like I said, if I believe I can't do a pull up, I can't do a pull up. Right. But if other people tell me you got this so I haven't my my novels coming out in probably in October and uh the people who've been reading it are like this is amazing like this is great like I haven't had it right any bad feedback I'm like this is exciting I mean who knows how it sells like all that's out of my control right yeah I wrote a really amazing book and this isn't the first one. My, all my books have won awards in the past, you know, like they're really well received. Like I did that. So I could go down that rabbit hole of, you know, I'm not good enough. I love, I used to write for psychology today and people, they used to be able to put comments. They can't do it anymore. Um, But I wrote a very controversial article once on Kratom. And I would get all these responses. The number one response to this article was, you're fat. Mm. I'm sorry, did that make me wrong? Like, did that make me (laughs) stupid? Like, what, like, you know, like, but I could go down that rabbit hole of not good enough because that's what the person's trying to do, right? Is tell me I'm not good enough, you know? And I'm like, oh, you just actually don't have anything else to say because I had said in the article that I I didn't think that um, children should have access to it that I thought that there should be an age limit mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and they're like don't take my I was like I, I don't think children should have access to some things <laughs> yeah right uh-huh <laughs> but the response was you're fat well I'm not I'm just right. not going to accept that you know and sometimes right. things are true and we don't have to accept them sometimes things mm-hmm. are facts so for example I've been sober for 25 years if someone came to me and said well back when you were drinking dude I have done the best of my ability to, right. to set right everything and if you want to hold a grudge I was in my t- early 20s when I was drinking last. Yeah. Did you ever do something stupid or foolish or that you thought better of after you did it when you were yeah. in your 20s? Because I certainly did drinking or not, and I'm not going to let you hold that against me. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think so, that's it. I like that example a lot because you you can live into an old story. You have to let the old story go at some point. And if uh, people around you don't let the old story go, you have, you can reject it. Absolutely. And you get to live into your stories, not someone else's. So going back to domestic violence, 
that person uses violence to control you, but they also use story. You're stupid. You're not good enough. You're fat. You're ugly. You don't make any money, whatever this, whatever their tale is. Mm -hmm. I had a, a friend who said to me, I was telling my tale of woe and how I was, you know, whatever I had done wrong that day. And he just looked at me and in a really sharp tone, he said, don't talk about my friend like that. I was like, wow. Yeah. That has stuck with me. Mm. And last night I was talking to someone and she started telling me her tale of woe. And I was like, no, stop. I am not going to listen to it. I'm just not going to validate that story. And it's the same thing that I hope we do with gossip. Mm. Because gossip is story that generally harms. Yeah. When we talk about gossip, gossip isn't saying, oh, did you hear Catherine was just nominated for a Nobel Prize? That's not <laughs> gossip. Right. So in Hebrew, we call it Lashon Hara, the, the, the evil tongue. Uh-huh. And it is one of the worst things that you can do, not only to engage in gossip, but to listen to it. Mm. So to me, there's not a lot of difference between gossip, which is you telling me about a third party. Yep. Or you telling me about how you are not good enough. And I choose to... I'll let a small amount, sometimes someone just has to vent, you know? Yeah, right. But you get a few seconds of that, 15, 20 seconds. And then it's like, okay, you, no, you don't talk about my friend like that. I'm, I'm not here. For, I'm not going to listen to you talk about yourself yeah. like that, you know? Now, if you're saying, you know, I, you know, you have cancer and you're like, I am so sick of these, you know, chemo treatments and I'm tired of being right. sick. And, you know, you with your, your foot surgery and man, I am over not being able to run yeah. and, you know, feeling bad about how that's not self-denigrating. Right. Right. That's, that's genuinely sharing your experience and connecting with another. And I'll listen to that all day long. Mm-hmm. But when you say, you know, uh, I don't, I don't deserve to run because now it's hard and right. it used to not be, we're going to turn that around right quick. And what's that little T what's the turnaround? What's the thing that we can pivot on? Yeah. Yeah. I really hear what you're saying. Last night I was venting to my husband about this foot thing. And I was, I was saying, I, you almost quoted me, like, I'm just over it. I'm over this having this constant pain and discomfort in my foot. It's been months and months and months and months and months and I'm just over it. And then something that I do is a really bad habit. If I make a mistake that I feel like hurts someone I'm really close to, I, and I'm talking like small mistakes, I tend to respond to it by saying, I'm a bad blank. I'm a bad sister. I'm a bad friend. So Hmm. a, a friend texted me yesterday if I could, if she was having a hard day and could she chat? I missed, I just missed it. And, um, it's a British friend. So the time different, you know, it's her evening, middle of my day. Yeah. And so I just missed it. I missed the message. And so I was checking my phone this morning at this point, you know, 24 hours later and I saw it. And in my head, the very first story is I'm a bad friend. 
I'm not, I'm not a bad friend at all. I'm a great friend. I missed it, you know, and, but the story. So what's the thing you can pivot on there? The thing, the first thing that comes to mind for me Uh is people miss texts. Right. Especially when there's a time zone difference. Yeah. Right. That's, again, you're making a story. You can make whatever story you want out of the bits of information. Right. So you can make the story of I'm a terrible friend because I missed the text or you can make the story. um, Oh, my gosh, I love this person and I missed a text. What can I do now? Right. 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 It's the same facts. It's just what you want to live in. And and how much it down, you know, if if I'm sitting in the I'm a bad friend story for, let's say, 10 minutes, three hours, eight hours, doesn't matter. It's hurting me. It doesn't make hurt. It doesn't make any difference to her. I already missed the text. And so being able to. Um, so I want to interrupt that. It yeah. does make a difference to her because if you, because what I do in these situations is I just go silent. Yeah. Cause you and feel tell myself this, this bad, this, um, that, and the people around me are like, well, you know, if you just made it right. So my closest, some of my closest friends live in Australia, in Melbourne, mm-hmm. very difficult time zone difference. Yes. And when I was in a a point in my life where I was very depressed, I would reach out to them sometimes. And first of all, if it's the middle of the night for them, they are not going to get the text. But if they're at work and I reach out, my friend Lee always from when I was ill to now when I'm not, but she still has the same are you okay? Do you need me right now? Mm-hmm. And the truth is I have not to this point needed her. And my answer has always been no. And that's not me playing on myself. That's been the truth. Right. But I know that if the answer was yes, she would drop everything and she would call me. So one right. of the things that you can do in a situation like that is you can own up and say, oh my God, goodness, I feel terrible. That's truth. I feel Mm -hmm. terrible that I missed your, your text. Is there, uh, is there anything I can do for you now? Yeah. And that's in fact, what I, exactly what I did do is like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I missed this. I am today. I'm available at this time and this time, but your point is exactly right. Because in prior times, what has happened is I felt so bad that I missed the message that she then doesn't hear from me until she then reaches out to me again. You know, are you okay? And it's like guilt and shame and, you know, and because the story was, I'm a bad friend. I'm a bad friend. She doesn't deserve to hear from me. That's exactly right. But maybe a better story is I'm a human being. Right. I think a better story is actually I'm a good friend because I care. I care that I missed it. That's an even better story. I like that better than, hey, I'm human and I missed a text. Right. You Because the truth is, you know, little T truth, you probably are. You do care. Right. Exactly. You do care, which is why she reaches out to you again. Because mm. if you were a bad friend, she wouldn't reach out to you in the first place and she should, certainly wouldn't follow up. Yeah. Right. That's true. That's very true. Facts. <laughs> so I'm going to the UK next week. Uh-huh. And I have a friend who who lives um, in the UK. She's British. She lives in the UK, 
And I said, right, sweetheart, I'm coming. And usually when I come to the UK, uh, she comes and visits wherever I am. The last time I was there a few, you know, before COVID a few years ago, uh, we went for a week all over the South of England and we went to so many fun things, right? I don't hear from her. I don't hear from her. I don't hear from her. Every, now this, she's lived with me in the U.S. I lived with her when I lived in London. Uh, we've traveled um, to Southeast Asia together. We've, I mean, we've been friends for 30 years. Every single person, when I said, I'm concerned I haven't heard from anything from this friend. Every single person said, what's wrong? Something's wrong. Mm. Yep. Every single person. You know, they're, they're like, because it's not the norm. Right. I, there's no, she's making up a story. I found out something is going on and she's making up a story that she's not good enough and she didn't blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I think you should join me. Yeah. She's like, well, I'm only available for two days and I'm not real well at the moment. And blah. I was like, I think you should join me because we've been friends for a long time and I don't care mm-hmm. if you're sick, then I'm going to get a hotel with a pool rather than a hotel without a pool. Right. And we're going to, and, and I'm going to make sure we, she went to Paris with me once to, I was giving a, a presentation. Mm-hmm. I showed up in England with like a few hours of a layover, I hadn't been, they hadn't built the London Eye when I lived there. So I wanted to go on the London Eye. Uh-huh. She made, she came and picked me up from the airport, drove all the way into town. We went on the London Eye, which she got tickets for, drove back to the airport to get on a <laughs> flight to France for me to give a presentation. I'm sick. Yeah. I get to France and I am sick Honey goes out and she gets medicine for me and brings it back to the hotel and makes sure I have room service. And then she goes out and sees London or excuse me, Paris. Mm-hmm. Right. She's not a good enough friend. Right. I'm not right. going to make a changes to my see how we get so discombobulated yeah. with these erroneous stories that stories. we tell, her, especially if we're saying I'm not good enough, mm-hmm. you know. Right. With addiction, right. one of the things that we see is parents who have, you know, been using when they have children and they say, well, I've hurt my kids. Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. But when they say, I'm not good enough, I can't set it right. Uh, maybe you can't. I don't know. I don't know your kid. Like, I, I don't know what you've done to my, uh, maybe you can't set it right. I don't know. But all that. I'm not good enough. All that does is lead you to keep using. Yeah. But on the other side of that, anytime I have seen someone who is trying to get sober and they lose their kids, they lose custody of their children, especially if it's absolutely no contact, they very rarely make it Mm. because they lose all hope. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, not that it, some people, of course, there's always you know, the outlier, but they, the just don't, they just don't get better. And then that's no good for the kid either, right? right? Because then they see mommy, daddy, you know, go off on this thing. So these stories that we are not deserving of basic human connection, love, support, understanding, 
Yeah. They don't serve us. Now, other mm-hmm. people will manipulate that, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, you know, have power over you, but, but th- right. those are, those are not uh, self-serving. Those do not serve you well. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Constance Schaff, thank you so much for this conversation. It has been so incredible. And I think you've given us just so much fantastic information about becoming aware of our own stories and really being the author of our own story, because that's what it's all about. It is. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, wasn't that the most incredible conversation? I took so much away from it. I wrote a bunch down. So I wrote down that, um, Dr. Constance Schaaf shared, we live the realities we tell ourselves. It just sort of really hit me. Oh my gosh, I live, the reality I live is the story I tell myself. That's a really powerful idea. It means that I can change it. If you change your story, you can change your reality. And it's not easy. Uh, It's not an easy thing to do, but I think it is a pretty powerfully simple concept that I really want to think about more. She said, stories are the foundation of our lives. And then she said, if you believe it's true, it's true. And I just thought that um, the, I don't know, just very, very, really made me think about how story threads through everything that we do and how when we change our story, we really can change um, an obstacle to, or we can overcome an obstacle that gets in the way of living the life that we want to live. Another thing she said that really struck me was she said that gossip is story that harms. And that is true if I'm gossiping about somebody else to a third party, but it's also true if we're telling ourselves a story about ourselves that is negative. It's sort of self-gossiping and it's a story that causes harm. And really thinking about how self-harm, or sorry, self-story or self-gossip is harmful in that way and how we can really start to change it is a really, really powerful idea. For any of you that subscribe to my newsletter, and if you don't already, you can sign up at katherinealonzo.com. You'll know that at the bottom of every newsletter, I every each month I uh, include a little risk. And this is an invitation to really invite you to take a little risk, to try something new and put yourself out of your comfort zone. And so my little risk for after listening to this conversation with Dr. Scharf is to try writing a new story for yourself. So here's what I want you to do is um, think about something that's going on in your life right now that's challenging. It might be a personal problem. It might be something at work. It might be something with maybe your spouse or your partner or a relative. It might even be something that's in your community. You're, you're struggling with um, something that a problem in your community that you wish you could change. And I want you to start down, start out by writing down what is the current story that you're telling yourself about that thing. So I'll use the personal example that I gave in the interview and I was talking to Dr. Schaaf, which is this surgery recovery that I'm going through right now. That my story that I've been telling myself is that I have been living with this foot foot pain, this foot problem for a year and a half now and I'm just over it and things aren't, it's lasting too long and I am lacking in patience. That's the story I've been telling myself. And now I want you to write down what story you could tell yourself. What is a different way to think about it? What's a way to reframe this? And so my personal one might be that I've come a long way and I am on the path to recovery. 
It might not be quite as fast as I want it to be, but each workout that I do, rather than being evidence of how much I've lost, maybe it can be evidence of the fact that I'm getting stronger every day and how far I've come. And so then I want you to think about what is your alternative story? Just try it out, write it down. And I think that um, doing that doesn't necessarily change overnight or in an instant like a light switch, how you think or how you feel. But what it does do is it creates the opportunity in your mind. Like there's, there's an opportunity here for me to think about this differently. I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation and that trying out to change your own story is something that is effective for you and really just gives you a little bit more agency in navigating the change in your life. Until next time, thanks so much for joining.